You are listening to the Working Dog Collective podcast. I'm your host, Holly, of Holly Crook Photography, based in Seattle, Washington. This is a listener-supported podcast, and details about how you can support this podcast for as little as $5 a month are provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining me on this journey of exploration into the world of working dogs. Let's get to work. My name is Rebecca Gibson, and I am the owner of Flyaway Geese. Okay. And Flyaway Geese provides what kind of service? Flyaway Geese trains working border collies to do nuisance bird management. So we train dogs um, that we put in place to work for facilities for us. And then we also train dogs that we sell to airports and golf courses and places like that to do nuisance bird control as well. Um, We also train dogs to do all types of nuisance wildlife control, whether it be deer or elk or anything like that. And how did you as a woman get into this field? You know, I started when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, who is now, gosh, I guess going to be 25 years old. And um, on the way home, one day from work when I had a real job, because I don't consider this a real job, but um, yeah, real job. Um, So when I had a real job, was on the way home from work one day, and I saw a sign that said Border Collie Puppies for Sale. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool? And um, so I was probably seven months pregnant at least. And I went home and I told my now ex-husband, I said, you know, um, I want to go get one of these border collies. And he said, well, just so long as it's not red. And I said, you know, no problem. So I go and um, I show up at these people's house. I don't know why I had, he didn't want a red one, but all they had was red ones of all odd things. (laughs) And so um, I brought it home anyway. um, (laughs) So I said he was my ex-husband. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we, um, I got a red border collie and he got bored really quickly. And, um, so I was managing a Sears store and had him at work with me one day. And this gentleman who worked there came in and he said, you know, that dog, um, should really be working sheep. I've got a friend who, um, is, has got a sheep farm. You should bring him out and work sheep with him. And I went out and I got super addicted to that. And, um, from there went to work for, Um, the lady who trained the very first border collie to work on a golf course back in the early nineties, worked for her for a bit, trained dogs for her for a bit, and then struck out on my own. And here we are 25 years later after the red dog that wasn't supposed to be red. (laughs) And the husband that wasn't supposed to be right. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He also told me, he said, you can bring home sheep, but I won't be a sheep farmer. And um, I'll never forget. I was at a fish industries, uh, trade show. And I stood up to do my presentation about the dogs working on fish farms. And um, I said, you know, my husband at, again, my husband at the time said he would never be a sheep farmer and he would be here today, but he's at home farming the sheep (laughs) because we had a hundred of them at the time. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. So you've been doing this for 25 years, at least for 25 years. Do you have a particular dog? Um, Because I know you have trained several dogs and you probably have worked personally with several, many, many dogs. Do you have a favorite? Gosh, you know, I always tell people, the answer to your question is yes, Mm -hmm. but I always tell people that I feel like that every dog that I have leads me to another dog that I need more than the one that I had before, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But there are two dogs that really stand out over the years. Um, One of them's name was Trixie. And Trixie was a dog that somebody sent to me to train to work sheep way back. I mean, I'm talking before my second daughter and when my first daughter was like two years old. So 23 years ago, I guess. And this gentleman sent her to me to train to work sheep. And she was not great at it. And she only had half, she only had half of a tail. And um, I remember he didn't pay me when he was supposed to, to pay me to, and I was done with training her. And so I come home from work one day and she's gone. She's, she's gone from where she had been and he had come and picked her up without paying. Uh-oh. And the funny part of the story is, is that about three days later, I get back and she's right back where she came from. And he never returned my phone calls again. Um, I think he realized that she was a lot of dog and um, she really was. And so I, 
I actually, at that time, was working for the lady up in Virginia um, who started this goose dog thing, Barbara Ray. And I took Trixie up to her and I said, you know, I want to sell her to you as a goose dog. And um, because I wasn't selling goose dogs at the time. And I got her out and she was such a hardworking dog. And she'd use that half of a tail that she had like a rudder. So she'd be swimming after birds. And when she'd go to change direction, she'd pick that tail up and move it and flip it to go the other way. It was really pretty cool. That's and amazing. Barbara said, I can't buy her because she's only got half of a tail and I can't sell a dog that's not whole. And I said, well, crap, now what am I going to do with this dog? So at that time, I kind of got into starting this goose control business and Trixie became the anchor of our goose control business. I mean, that dog, she would go out, we would go to my grandmother's where I'd put some ducks out on the pond to train dogs and Trixie, the ducks learned, they were ducks that couldn't fly and they learned when I pulled up that the dogs were coming. Mm -hmm. So they would go into the woods and hide and Trixie would go find them, take them to the pond, throw them in and then jump in <laughs> after them and chase them. She was, she was a hoot. Um, I went to, when I started selling goose dogs, um, there was a golf course superintendent. Um, his name was George Thompson. And George was the grandfather of golf course superintendents in the state of North Carolina. And everybody said to me, if you want to start selling goose dogs, in North Carolina, if you sell a dog to George Thompson, everybody else will buy them because mm -hmm. they look to George for all the answers. And we went and did goose control services for George and had Trixie with us. And um, George decides that he wants to buy a dog at the end of it. We got rid of all of his geese and he said, you know, I want to buy a dog. So George looks at me and he says, I want to buy that dog. And he points at Trixie. And I said, well, Trixie's not for sale. And he said, I'm the golf course superintendent of the country club of North Carolina. I have a checkbook that is endless. Just tell me what you want for. And I said, George, I can't sell her. She trains all of my young dogs. You know, I, I can't. He said, just name the price. And he kept going on. And I was like, no, I can't sell her, but I'll get you a dog just as good as she is, which mm -hmm. wasn't quite mm -hmm. as good, but so he was a nice dog. And so I sold Cody to George and that's what started our goose control business. But Trixie was so funny. She, you really walked on eggshells with Trixie because if she was happy, she'd work a hundred percent for you. But if she was angry at you, mm -hmm. my ex-husband one day had her out working birds on a golf course and she wouldn't get in the water. And so he threw her in and she got so mad that she sat at his feet and wouldn't work birds for two weeks. And he kept coming in the living room and going, do you know why my shoes are wet? And I'm like, no. And Trixie was peeing in his shoes. I mean, that was just her. I mean, that's amazing. It, it, that was her. And she ended up working for me at Dover Air Force Base. Um, I had a wildlife biologist who worked for me. Um, her name is Karen Voltura. And Karen and Trixie just hit it off. They, they completely understood each other. Karen understood that Trixie knew her job mm -hmm. and you didn't ever question it. Um, mm -hmm. And you really couldn't tell her what to do. You just needed to take her to the places where she was going to do it and be there when she got done. And um, so for 10 years, I guess, Trixie worked for me at Dover Air Force Base, working 60 to 70,000 snow geese a day. And wow. she lived out the end of her days with Karen. And um, after we finished at Dover Air Force Base and she was older and, um, but Still to this day, everybody knows if you ask them, you know, you don't make Trixie mad because that was not a good thing. Um, my ex-husband and I went to Costa Rica one time and left a guy at the farm to take care of things. And he knew her and he called us in Costa Rica and said that he was laying on our couch and Trixie had gotten up on top of him and he was rubbing her while he was watching TV and he stopped rubbing her and she started growling and showing all of her teeth and laying on his chest. And he's like, I don't know how to get up. And I said, yeah, I just wait till she's, I keep rubbing her is what I do. Trixie those was are, a great dog. Those are the um, dogs who know what they're doing and really don't need a human to tell them what to do. Just put food in my bowl, transport me where I need to go, and I will do right. the job that I'm going to if, do. If Trixie had had thumbs, she would have not needed anybody. Um, <laughs> she could have driven, she could have fed herself, um, and she would have chosen, I think, not to have very many people around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she yeah. just wasn't a super lovey-dovey kind of dog. Um, right. Trixie wanted to work and she'd do this thing when you drove her around. She knew 
when you were somewhere that there were birds. I mean, she just had this innate sense that there are birds here. If she saw manicured grass or if she saw a body of water and she would stand in the vehicle with her feet on the center console and she would start this God awful whining mm-hmm. every time she knew we were somewhere near birds. It was so bad that one day we were on the radio with the tower at Dover Air Force Base and they asked Karen if we had a dying goose inside of the vehicle. Oh, um, no. because Trixie just was, oh, oh, I just, and it, and I tried in the beginning to stop it, to just get her to be quiet. And it finally was one of those things where, you know, you, they tell you, you pick your battles and that was just not one we wanted to fight with her. So, um, that's the amazing thing about, um, these particular, this particular breed of dogs is that innate drive and their, their knowledge of the job that they're supposed to be doing. How do you differentiate between a border collie that wants to work on sheep and a border collie that wants to work on birds? So when you're training a dog, I, all of my dogs that are going to be goose dogs start out on birds. And the reason it, for that is, is that a border collie's natural instinct is to go out and around something and bring it to you. Mm-hmm. That is their ingrained natural instinct. And what we do is very opposite of that. So when you're training a border collie to work sheep, you teach them that if it if they don't do the right thing, if they don't lie down, if they're too tight when they go around the sheep, whatever it is that they're doing incorrectly, the correction for that is that they don't get their sheep. So they don't get to go behind them and control them and bring them to you. That's, okay. that's how you correct everything when you're training a sheep dog. The reality is when you're training a dog to work birds, they lose their stock every time mm-hmm. if they do it right. And that's against everything that internally their bodies are telling them they need to do, you know? Um, and so what I've found is that if I show them birds first and I teach them that birds, we want birds to fly away, that when their natural instinct kicks in, I can manage around that because they learn the birds first. So that's what I really try to do with the dogs that I raise from puppies. Now, if I'm getting a dog that let's say flunked out a working sheep, Generally, the best dogs for me are those dogs that want to take up off the field, up the field and blow through the middle of sheep or, mm-hmm. um, you know, make uh-huh. a mess um, and not control things. Because a lot of times if I get a dog that's got too much of that control and too much talent as a sheep dog, when I put them on birds, they want to lock up and not move. So the birds don't fly so that they can keep control of them. And that's not very useful. Uh-huh. What I do. That makes sense. So you're, you're training the dogs opposite of what they instinctively know, but you're teaching them that it's okay to go downfield and scatter the flock. And what is their reward right. for doing that? For a border collie, um, the reward is just continuing to work. And so, and to tell him, telling them that they did a good job. So that's really all that I have to do is teach them that that's where they get the positive reinforcement from is when birds fly away. So I tell my handlers and I tell, no matter how old the dog is and how long they've been doing this, every time a bird flies, we tell the dog, that they did the right thing every time. Um, and we're the cheerleaders. They're doing all the hard work. They're mm-hmm. swimming in these big bodies of water and you know, doing all this work. All I'm doing is standing on the side of the pond and telling them they did a great job. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, that part to me is really important. You know, The reason that border collies work for this is because when a border collie moves stock, they put their heads down and their tails in between their legs and they stalk things. Mm-hmm. And to a bird, that's the movement and the motion of a natural predator, a wolf, coyote, Arctic fox, whatever it may be that that particular species of bird has a predator, but any bird that spends any time on the ground falls prey to wolves, coyotes, and foxes. Yeah. So the birds are born with a fear of something that moves like that. So we're using the border collie's natural body movement against their natural instincts Mm -hmm. to get a reaction Mm -hmm. from the bird because Birds don't see like you and I do. So color shapes and patterns trigger brain responses to them. So something that moves like a wolf or a coyote, it says predator, this isn't yeah. good. It's amazing to me that the way that the, you can shape the behavior of the dog to uh, do the job that they have to do, whether it be sheep, whether it be birds, um, you can still use the advantages that you have that the dog naturally has to get the job done. And that's what fascinates me so much about working dogs in general. Um, I'm a border collie in human form. I always have been. I just have to be working. Right. And that's the, yeah, that's the best type of person to have one is you've got to be. Otherwise you just don't get it. 
yes. And all I need is a good job, girl, pat on the back and I'm good to go. You know, <laughs> it's like, keep on working. Right. So I've always, um, I've, I've always kind of leaned in towards the border collies, but there's so many different jobs that they can do, but their focus and their drive is what is such a mystery to me. And it's what I love so much about them. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter the job that you give them. They want to do the work as long as you show them what right. it is you want them to do. It's fantastic. Right. It's, and it's fascinating to me that, um, that you have taken their behavior and shaped it so that they chase birds away instead of trying to herd them. And, and, you know, it, people ask me all the time, one of the, the questions that I get more than anything is why don't you use Labrador retrievers? Um, because, you know, they're natural bird dogs and everybody thinks that that would just be the great thing. Um, but if you think about the way a lab moves, they bound after things, you know, it, it's very lopy and boundy and, um, a lab has to retrieve for reward. That's, that's part of their, their natural instinct is that they want to retrieve. And so though I could probably chase birds with any breed of dog, um, if I want birds to stay gone, I have to get inside their heads and convince them that there's a predator there. And that's what the border collie gives me. And, you know, I do, I have some dogs over the years that I've had some dogs over the years that have succeeded as very talented sheep dogs and also very talented goose dogs. Um, and there are a lot of those dogs out, well, I won't say a lot, there, there are some of those dogs out there that can dual purpose like that, but it's a very confusing thing to say, okay, I want you to run straight after this, but I want you to do this big sweeping out run when we do this. And, um, but I mean, I do have some, I mean, my Greg dog, who's the face of flyaway geese, you know, he's, he's all in the, he's the logo and he's, he's ever, anybody who knows flyaway geese knows Greg and he's beautiful and he's stunning and he poses mm -hmm. anytime you point a camera at him and he's just one of those dogs mm -hmm. and Greg gets it. Greg's mother got it. You know, they, Greg knows when we're work, working ducks when, you know, we're doing demos and we've got ducks that can't fly and we're trying to, you know, put them in a pen or drive them through a course for people to clap and say how great that was. And he can go from that to chasing and hazing geese, you know, mm -hmm. in five seconds. Mm -hmm. it, it's not even confusing for him. Yeah. Um, like I said, his mother was the same way. Some of them just really get it. And some of them go, you know, I don't, I mean, my trial dog now, my sheep dog trial dog, loves to work ducks and birds. I mean, if she, you put her out in the pasture and there's sheep and there are ducks and birds, she's going to bring me the ducks every time. Um, but she's going to do that same outrun on geese that she would working ducks. To her, it's all the same. She's trying to bring them to me. Um, oh. and, it, and you should see the look on the geese's face. It's almost humorous when you go to send the dog and they're geese that have seen the dog before. And they're like, oh my gosh, here comes the dog. And they get ready and they're ready to fly. And then she takes off in the opposite direction because she's going way far <laughs> so she can get around on the other side of them. And they're looking at each other like, why did she go that way? I thought she was coming after us. Yeah. Yes, she'll get to you in a couple minutes. She's got to go <laughs> to get behind you. So. What is the process? Um, so let's say I own a golf course and I'm having trouble with geese on my property. What is the process? You, yep. you, you bring a dog in, obviously. How do you get rid of the geese and how do you, how, how do you make sure the geese stay gone? So when they have a dog delivered to them, mm -hmm. um, they go through a training process with us where we go out on the golf course and show them how we would do goose control on their property if we were doing it ourselves. And they have a two week period where they're not supposed to work the dog. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, so that they can bond with the dog and the dog can settle in its new environment. Um, I do find that it's kind of like a Christmas present um, that you give them and they can see it, but they can't touch it. And it's Aww. really hard for them. Um, they, they really want to go work the dog instantaneously. But um, so what we do is, is we tell them that they need to work the dog three to four times a day or as often as they can, if the dog is on site and surprise and startle the birds as often as possible because what we're trying to do is make the reward of the grass not worth the risk of the dog being there yep. so in order to do that they have to make the dog appear like an actual predator so I, I say all the time that a border collie is a wolf or coyote that I can control who what where and how it hunts so 
I have to convince those birds that that dog is a predator. I can't do that if the dog's wearing jingly tags so that Mm -hmm. the birds hear the dog coming. They will associate sound to the dog appearing. So the dog needs to appear silently. Um, I can't do it by showing up in the same vehicle every time and letting the dog out of it because literally within two days, the birds will start to associate a particular vehicle with the dog coming out of it. Wow. I had no Um, idea. They're not stupid birds. And um, they really, they associate people with the dog. They associate different things that they will start to figure out things that happen before the dog gets out. And so the big thing is making sure that you don't have a pattern. So mm-hmm. you don't come from the same direction. Mm-hmm. You try to use the lay of the land and have the dog startle the birds from coming from a spot that the, the birds can't see the dog coming from. Um, and the more of that you do, the quicker that it works. And so, you know, if you've got a property that's had birds for years, it's probably going to take two weeks to 30 days for those birds to pattern to living somewhere else. And all we're really doing in reality, geese are very pattern-oriented birds. They eat at the same place in the morning, the same place in the afternoon. They overnight at the same places overnight, resident geese that is. So all the dog is doing is, is changing pattern, teaching those birds a different pattern. So we teach them that the pattern is offsite, um, anywhere offsite and we leave you alone. And what we find is, you know, as I told you, we just started this new property up here in West Virginia. And when they did the tour to show us where all the geese were, you know, they said, we never see geese over here. And they point to this big area, this wildlife refuge of all funny things. The geese never go there. They're always in the places they're not supposed to be. Within two days of the dogs being on site and working them in the areas that they're heavy in, all of a sudden now we're seeing birds in the area that they've never seen them in because the birds are trying to find somewhere the dog won't bother them. Yeah. So it's very important that we stay on that. And um, then once we've convinced the birds to overnight somewhere else, then they're technically living somewhere else, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's similar to imagine this, you know, if you're staying at the Motel 6, which I do a lot in the Red Roof because I travel with dogs all the time. So you're staying at your local friendly Motel 6 and somebody comes beating on the door in the middle of the night and says, you got to go. You got to get out of here right now. Okay. You're going to leave. You're not going to want to be there. But if the same thing happens at your house, somebody comes and beats on the door and says, we don't want you here anymore. You've got to go. You're going to fight that. Mm -hmm. The geese are the same way. So once we've convinced them to live somewhere else, the beginning is hard because we're convincing them to leave what they know is home. Mm -hmm. But once we've convinced them of that, when they come back intermittently, when other birds come in and go, oh, this looks like a great pond to be in, and the dog shows up out of nowhere, it's like that Motel 6. Yep. It's not their home. They just stop yeah. for the day, and it's not a safe place to be, so they just move on. Got so it. the beginning is the hard part and the strenuous part, and after that, it's just maintenance. Got it. Okay. So you're relocating the the geese to a place that's safer for them to live, and then as the Correct. as strange geese or new geese come in or new birds come in, the dog is is appearing and saying, nope, nope, this is not a good place to be. So once the birds are relocated, the dog still has a job to do by keeping the pond or the property free of other birds. That's correct. Most of, I mean, we run 52 properties a day in Charlotte um, and a majority of them don't have birds 95% of the time. Okay. Um, but they have us out every day because if, If they didn't, and I mean, some of them, we just go three days a week, some of them five, but if we weren't maintaining that and those birds were allowed to sit for a week Mm -hmm. or two weeks, then you get back to that, this is our home kind of thing. And then it takes a lot more work to push them away. So it's really important to keep it maintained. Got it. That, that makes total sense. So if you're running a dog on property that there are no birds, does the dog get frustrated because there's no birds? I think during certain times of the year, my dogs get frustrated because they'll go out. I mean, over the summer and things like that, when geese are molting and we've pushed all the birds off of our properties and there's nothing going on for three months, you know, you take them out and they're all excited and they're ready to go work birds and you drive around for four hours and there's nothing. Yeah. And um, two months into that and they're kind of going, gosh, this is not cool, mom. But that's why we have ducks at the farm and we've got a pond at the farm and, you know, we can get them out and work them there on birds that can't fly. And 
they get that stimulation without having to see birds out on site. Okay. Then I think some of them after, after working some of our bigger projects um, where they work really hard and really long for a period during nesting season, um, I think some of them are ready for a break. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And that leads right into my next question is that you also offer nest control services and in my mind, I have a vision of what I think that looks like, but why don't you tell me what that is? So everything that we do um, as a company is approved and um, promoted mm -hmm. by PETA and the mm -hmm. Humane Society as the most humane method of managing Canada geese mm -hmm. or nuisance wildlife. And so when we manage nests for properties, what we do is, is we go on and we get them an egg addling it's a registration now, it used to be a permit, but it's an egg addling registration through Fish and Wildlife so that we're legal and they're legal to handle the nest for them. Okay. And then um, we float the eggs to determine where they are in their maturation process. So as long as they're below 10 to 14 days, there's not actually an embryo, it's just an egg yolk like you'd find at the grocery store kind of mm -hmm. thing. And so um, an egg is permeable, so we take corn oil and um, put it on the egg and the corn oil makes that egg impermeable. We wipe that off, we mark the egg and um, put it back in the nest. So the bird continues to sit on the egg even though the egg is now non-viable. And we let her do that for at least two weeks so that her body has come out of nesting mode. Mm -hmm. And um, then we'll use the dogs to push her out and off. Um, now, if we have nests like this property that we started up here, um, they had a problem with a couple of pairs of birds that were in front of major doors and of this property. And um, the birds, they had five attacks in a two week yeah. period yeah. of people yeah. getting attacked by um, these nesting birds. And they couldn't not use this door. It was the main entrance to this big facility. And so um, we went ahead and pulled the eggs on that nest and, and pushed that bird off. And she'll probably go relay somewhere else, but as long as it's not at that door, you know, we'll deal yeah. with it past that. But you know, it, it is a dangerous situation if you've got elderly people or something like that and they're mm -hmm. getting attacked by a bird. Um, they can be very, very aggressive and, yes. um, and cause damage to people. Um, I mean, there was a lady, two instances, one in Missouri where a lady was um, in a parking lot and she got attacked by a nesting goose and she fell and broke her arm. They had to do oh. surgery on her arm and she went into preterm labor while they were doing surgery on her. And then a lady at a cemetery in Texas got attacked by a nesting bird, fell and broke her hip. She was visiting her husband's grave. I mean, you know, it just, oh. there are safe places to do that. Geese, mm -hmm. the, the problem is, is that, you know, resident geese are the problem. It's not a migratory bird problem. It is a resident goose population problem. And what happened is in the 1930s, when the Migratory Bird Act took place, the Canada goose populations were deteriorating. And so they put the Migratory Bird Act in place and numbers started going up. Well, then they started destroying the salt marshes because that point in time, Canada geese only ate salt marsh grass. And they, they became so overpopulated that they were killing off the salt marshes and they were starting to die off and um, you know, population control of its own was happening. Well, they began to evolve mm -hmm. from a bird that mm -hmm. ate only salt marsh grass that had to travel from Canada to you know, the Delmarva area of the East Coast or down into Louisiana and, um, you know, the Gulf Coast area to get salt marsh grass during the winter time when it was frozen in Canada to eating farm fields and eating manicured grasses and those types of things. So when that evolution took place, there was no reason to migrate anymore because they didn't have to leave because yeah. grass grows all the time in 90% of the United States. So you start seeing these resident bird populations, you know, grow mm -hmm. exponentially. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a migratory bird may fly 2000 miles a season mm -hmm. and a resident mm -hmm. goose generally goes no more than 10 miles away from where it was born. Wow. And it, you don't think about that making a big difference, but the average migratory Canada goose live seven years. Geese okay. don't nest until they're three. So that's four years of breeding for that bird. If she has five eggs to do easy math, she's had 20 babies. By the time she dies, she's, she's put 20 babies into the world. A resident Canada goose can live to be 25. What? Because they're what? not putting that damage to their bodies 
by flying all of that energy and and motion of moving so much yeah. um, it's kind of like a car yeah. that you're putting more miles on you know and so those resident birds can have 22 broods of babies in their their time um wow. and so that really changes a population grid very quickly mm-hmm. um so that's yep. where the problem has arisen from. So that, okay. And I don't know that we'll ever find a solution because at the end of the day, you can't determine if visually the difference between a resident Canada goose and a migratory Canada goose. So that eliminates hunting helping things because mm-hmm. you can't differentiate between the two. And they don't want to decrease the migratory bird populations because they're protected still by the Migratory Bird Act. And a majority of these problems where these birds are causing nuisance issues are inside of towns and homeowners associations and golf courses. And they're certainly not going to have people come out, and, yeah. you know, discharge yeah. firearms in those areas. Exactly. It's illegal exactly. in those places. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, I had no idea about the evolution of the, the Canada goose that, it, that some of them become resident geese. But now that I think about it, it, it does make sense. I'm originally from Michigan and we used to have Canada goose that would come for the winter and stay during the middle sure. of the winter. And they're, they were um, right. snuffling through the snow, trying to find grass. And I kept thinking to myself, why are these birds still here? But I never looked into it and they didn't have, right. we didn't have flyaway geese dogs, you know, in Michigan, but I can see right. there would be a huge benefit to that because they were ruining parks and um, manicured lawns. And they, they were in places where they really shouldn't have been. And we're chasing people and kids and small dogs because they sure. do get they get overly aggressive. And I have a friend who um, actually runs a goose control business in Michigan um, called Goodbye Geese, and he helps me with that. He does our website and stuff like that. And um, great guy. And so now Michigan does have goose control Yay. with some great working <laughs> dogs. And um, but uh, you know, back to the evolution of the birds for just a second. 25 years ago when I started this, if you had told me that 25 years from now we would be sitting and talking and I would tell you that we are now doing a lot of rooftop goose nest management, um, I'd have told you you were crazy because Mm -hmm. goslings can't fly. So when a mother goose has a nest on top of a building, she has to literally throw the babies off the side of the building for them to survive because they have to get water and food. But they've had so much pressure put on them and so little space to be that the rooftops are a great predator free environment mm-hmm. and they can get up next to heating units and um, air conditioning units and air handlers because they produce heat. Mm-hmm. And um, there's mm-hmm. usually water held on top of a roof for a period of time and goslings are pretty pliable. So when they drop them, you know, 60, 70% of them survive, yeah. but the fact that they're willing to go to that extreme. Um, one of my employees sent me a picture the other day of one on top of a, um, a on top of a shipping container. Oh, wow. And what do you do and about he, that? Well, she got up on top of the van and climbed up on top of the shipping container and addled eggs just like she would anywhere oh. else. But, you know, it's, it's crazy to see what all, but at the end of the day, I mean, we've got to control their reproduction rate. I mean, Mm -hmm. they're just reproducing at such ridiculously high rates that, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, to me, that's the most humane thing to do for them is to help them manage their population because otherwise they get so overpopulated in areas that they start to get disease and pass disease back and forth amongst themselves. And, and that's not good either. Every state in the union in the United States has a goose problem. No, not everyone. Okay. Um, if they've got a pretty significant alligator problem, they don't have a goose problem. So <laughs> that um, makes sense. It, you know, um, though I'm starting to see more geese down in Florida, um, Florida has not been a big heavy area. They have an Italian goose problem, which is a, a bird that was released down there that is a not a native species to okay. there. It actually was a farm okay. bird, farm raised, and now they, they are overpopulating in Florida and causing major issues. Um, but as far as a major goose problem, you know, a majority of it started in areas that would have been normal flyways for the birds. So I think the hottest spot for resident goose population started in New Jersey and has kind of spread out in this kind of 
fog um, as mm -hmm. you know in North Carolina it wasn't as big of a deal um, 25 years ago and now they're all over the place um, mm -hmm. you know and I think South Carolina I South Carolina has not ever had a big problem except for along the North Carolina borders um, Georgia's kind of been the same way again anywhere where you you've had populations of um, alligators it seems to keep yeah. keep birds out um, though like yeah. I said it's changing and so your company actually works with and is approved by um, the USD Wildlife Services and the US Fish and Wildlife Services. So what you're doing is actually not only helping the, the private businesses with whom you work, but it's also helping um, these government entities keep an, keep an eye on the goose population and understand what is happening with the goose population. Is that correct? That's very true. Okay. That's very true because we have to report all of our egg addling and um, mm -hmm. all of that to them. And, uh, you know, we work closely with a lot of those guys um, passing information back and forth and changes that we see um, in bird behavior. I mean, it's it's astonishing to me the the evolution that I've seen in these birds, literally watching them. I mean, it, it is crazy how quickly they change based on what we're doing to mm -hmm. try to manage their population. Yeah, yeah, and they're just trying to survive. You know, they're just trying to keep multiplying sure. because that's they what they're supposed to, to be doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right, so, Re reproduce and poop. That's all they know how to do. Isn't that the truth? How many teams yes. um, do you have working with your company and how many teams do you have out in the field? Like, do you know how many people have purchased flyaway dogs and are actually working them? I would say that they're probably currently working across the United States, um, flyaway geese dogs with handlers that have bought dogs um, mm -hmm. over the last 10 years, let's say probably 500. Wow. Um, and some of them, some of them are working for goose, other goose control companies, like the one I mentioned up in um, Detroit, they have a couple of our dogs. Um, there are a lot of goose control companies that have flyaway geese dogs. Um, and then golf courses. I mean, we, we're really, we have a really great relationship with the golf course superintendents association um, here in the United States. And we work really closely with them and do a lot of trade shows for them and demos with the dogs at the trade show. I mean, our dogs, I hasten to say are probably one of the more popular things at the trade show. Um, of they, course they you are. Know, you know, we keep things entertaining at the golf course show. So I'd say probably, you know, 500 if I had to, you know, just throw a number out there. And um, as far as handlers and dogs working for us, um, we've got 20 handlers working for us across the United States. Um, I mean, the one project in Virginia Beach, I've got 20 dogs working on that project with wow. 11, well, 13 handlers, wow. if you count my husband and I. Then we've got somebody in Surprise, Arizona, who has got a dog with her. And um, we've got somebody in Little Rock, Arkansas, who's doing um, the parks there in Little Rock. And um, we're getting ready to put somebody up here in West Virginia. And I have someone in um, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, doing um, a Walmart distribution center and some parks and things like that there. Holy smokes. Like, And your husband takes the dogs to um, Hendrix Motorsports, correct? Um, I was watching your video on your homepage about how he's socializing the dogs to get used to men because you're a woman and you work right. with dogs. Yeah. Right. And that's a hard thing. And yeah, that's a really is. hard thing. He's not with Hendrick anymore. Um, I had to actually, he worked for Hendrick for 23 years, um, building chassis and um, he was oh. on a pit crew for them for years. And um, I guess a year and a half, no, two years ago, almost three years ago, we got so busy that um, I needed him at home to work. So um, we still do goose control for Hendrick, but mm -hmm. he um, is not working for them anymore. He's working yeah. with me full time now. Got it. The dogs take us everywhere, you know, I mean, and, and I tell everybody the dogs, I tell all of my employees, you know, our dogs give us everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wouldn't have a house. I wouldn't have a farm. I wouldn't have my vehicle. Um, all these trips that we take, my kids going through college, you know, everything that my kids have ever known. And my husband has two daughters and I have two daughters. Um, and they all understand that everything that we have is because of the dogs. Mm -hmm. And so the dogs come mm -hmm. first because they give us everything. Yes. So absolutely. we in turn do yes, the same absolutely. for them. Our personal dogs are so insanely rotten that um, <laughs> it's, 
nearly disgusting. Mm -hmm. My husband's dog is the most rotten dog that has ever been on the planet. He's he's got three legs, and um, don't, nobody sh and should ever feel sorry for him because of that. Um, and but my husband massages that dog oh. every night. The long and the short of it is that he and that dog have a unbelievable relationship. That dog mm -hmm. is so rotten, so mm -hmm. rotten. <laughs> my dog's not any different though. I'm not going to lie. She's, she's pretty rotten herself. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, no matter what, these dogs give me everything that they've got every day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they might not be as on point as other days, but at the end of the day, they never question what I ask from them. They never, you know, look at me and go, no, I don't want to work today. Yeah. Um, you know, they just don't. And, yeah. you know, I have great employees, um, at, thankfully, but, you know, I see a lot of people that I, I tell them all the time, you know, if you could get employees like my dogs, you'd really have something, you know, mm -hmm. because they don't care seven days in a row, 24 days in a row, 365 days in a row. They want to go to work the 366th day. Just, they're just fascinating dogs. And I love that they have that drive and that motivation to work because it's just part of who they are. They don't ask for anything in return. They just sure. want to go out and do their job. And it's just, it's one of those mysteries. I hope I actually never really unravel, but I will continue to dig into because it's just, it's magical to me how these dogs can turn it on, go to work, get the job done. And all they want is a, that a boy, good job. Good job. Yeah, yeah exactly. Let's go do it again. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, and you know, I, I tell people that I had a, a vet friend of mine who's, who's a big vet at, does a lot of work with NC State and stuff. And I made this comment to her and she found it very interesting and really thought they should do some research on it. But I really equate border collies to having a very similar mentality to autistic children. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who's got a, a low functioning autistic child. And to me, they're very much the same. Um, the things that they're really good at, they're really good at, like yep. to the point of genius levels of good at them. But change a pattern on them and mix things up or make things different. And they really get flipped upside down about that. Some mm -hmm. of them worse than others. I mean, I'll, I have people all the time that call me and go, well, you know, my dog is freaks out over the ice maker in the refrigerator. And I can't explain it. I don't mm -hmm. know why. I don't know what is going on inside that dog's head that causes that, but something is telling it that that's not Yep. normal. And, yeah. and I don't know, but, um, I wish that I could figure that piece of the puzzle out that why some of them get really off the rails, um, about certain things. Um, I, t I, a lot of the dogs that are like that, that I can't put out in every situation, they end up working for us. And, mm -hmm. um, because I know that I can handle it and I know that my husband can handle it and we can work around those end arounds. Um, but in the hands of somebody who doesn't do it every day or who's trying to do it as, you know, may be an agronomist by trade and now is chasing geese with a dog, mm -hmm. that dog's going to get itself in trouble. Yeah. And, and, the, and the handler. Right. And I don't want to see that, you know? Um, so to me, it's really important that these dogs get, we're really careful about where we place dogs and placing the right dog in the right situation. And if it's not the right situation, then I'm going to fix it because I don't want that dog to get itself in trouble. Right. And um, it, to me, that's a really important piece of it is making sure that the dogs are where they need to be to succeed mm -hmm. and to, to be happy. I mean, I have one that went through multiple sheepdog hands and, and fairly heavy handed handlers. And, um, he was a train wreck when I got him. I mean, just a train wreck, but that is the happiest bird chasing dog you have ever seen. I mean, his world is right when he's out chasing birds and he works with my daughter and she knows that he's weird about people. So in certain mm -hmm. situations, you can't get him out. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've got to pull somebody else out, but when it's his time and it's the right situation for him, he is in his element, you know, mm -hmm. and he, mm -hmm. his father was an international Supreme sheepdog. His, his grandfather was an international Supreme sheepdog. At one point he was the most well-bred dog in the United States of America. Now he's a goose dog, which probably wouldn't make a whole lot of people very happy, but at the same time, <laughs> he's good at it. And you know, yeah. he's good at it and he loves it. Well, and, and to me, it's about finding what they're good at mm -hmm. and knowing where their weaknesses are mm -hmm. and capitalizing on the things that they're good at 
and avoiding the things that they're bad at. Right. So you don't, you don't subscribe to um, a blanket training effect where like this is, we do it this way, step by step by step by step by step. And if it, and you expect it to work for every dog, do you take into consideration the personality of the dog and kind of tailor your training to the personality of the dog? No, I do not train every dog the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, I have hard dogs and I have soft dogs and, you know, dogs that take a lot of pressure and dogs that won't take any pressure. And, you know, to me, if I regimented that and said, every dog has to fall in this square peg, um, I'd lose a lot of really good dogs. um, So I mold my training and we mold our training to the individual dog. And sometimes you forget. And sometimes you, you go, you go to correct one or, you know, go to put pressure on one and you think you're working another one or you, 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 and then you go, Oh, that was too much. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> should have rated right. that back a little bit. Right. Or you've got one of the heavy, one of the ones that's a heavy hitter that, you know, comes at you as hard as you go at it. And, and you, you, cor- you give your correction verbally and he goes, no, I don't even hear you. So thanks. I have found that um, over the course of the past, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years that dog training world is going towards idea that, yeah, we have to train the dog based on the personality and the behavior of the dog. Now, this is something I've done my entire life. And when there were, there were other trainers that came along um, about 20 years ago, and I'm not going to name names, but um, came across with the alpha dog mentality and I'm in charge and that there was only really one way to train a dog. And even though I fought that people didn't seem to understand that you could, you could learn from a dog, you could learn their tells, you could watch their body language, and you could tailor the way that you communicate with that dog, because they will tell you, as as long as you're listening, they will tell you, yeah, this is going to work. No, this isn't going to work. So I'm finding it very interesting. And so I'm very pleased to know that you're, that, that you listen to the dogs and that you, that you tailor your training based on what the dogs are telling you. So if you could go back to when you were like 15 or 16 years old, what advice would you give to yourself or to people that are young, who may be thinking of a career of working with dogs, what advice would you give to a young person? Biggest piece of advice that I would give to somebody is learn from as many people as you can. Because I think that people get really stuck in a box of, I like the way this person handles, or I like the way this person works dogs. And so they limit themselves by only learning from that one person. And I've always said that I can learn something from anybody, mm-hmm. even if it's, I don't ever want to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I learned from some people over the years was that I don't ever want to train dogs like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I took pieces of other things that they did and, you know, they've made me the trainer that I am today. Um, then there were some people that I, I would have taken everything in their brain had I had the ability to, but I think it's important that you keep an open mind and you learn something from everybody and not shut things out. Um, I'm not a user of electronic collars and I think that they're bad for border collies, but I've learned a lot of things like, mm-hmm. you know, that I don't want to use one. Yeah. And, um, but you know, any piece of the puzzle, I think it's important. You've got to learn about them. And, um, the other thing that I would have done is I think I would have educated myself more on the biology side of it coming. Had I known this was what I was going to do, um, you know, my degrees in classical vocal performance. So I was an opera singer and that did not put me in a very good place to, um, you know, all the stuff that I've learned about bird biology. Thankfully, when I hired Karen, um, she had a PhD in bird ecology. And so when I hired her, I was just going out and chasing birds with dogs and thought it was mm-hmm. great and everything was fantastic. She brought to the equation the bird biology and the energetics piece of it and the how I could work smarter, not harder, and make these dogs more effective long-term. And so all of the scientific pieces of it I wish I had known earlier mm-hmm. on, it probably would have changed how I trained dogs in the beginning too, because yeah. I would have, yeah. I would have worked how I train the dogs as I do now, based on how the birds are going to react. And that makes, that makes total sense to me and how, it, how your career has just fallen into place to bring you to the place that you are now. And one of my questions that I've always asked my um, working dog partners is what would you be doing if you weren't a working dog partner, but you already answered that by saying an opera singer? I always wanted to go to Nashville and sing country music. That was my thing. Um, and uh, my ex-husband did not want to live in a big city. And so we settled on a farm near my parents instead. And the dog thing came to be, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I don't think that I would be 
happier as a country music singer than I am training dogs today. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see how life takes you where you're supposed to go, despite what you think you want to do. Yeah. And I told, we did an interview yesterday and I I told the girl that we were interviewing, she was telling me that she had gotten burnout on her job at the, uh, she was working in an emergency vet and how, how hard that could be, you know? And, um, I said, well, one thing that I could say doing this for 25 years is that I still, every time a young puppy turns on to working, it still makes me super excited. Every time a group of birds flies, a group of birds fly away, it still makes me excited. Um, every time a dog that wasn't supposed to make it mm-hmm. makes it and gets to that place that he's supposed to be, it it still is an awesome feeling. So, yeah. you know, yeah. to say that in a career that I've been doing for a quarter of a century now and over half of my life, um, pretty exciting stuff. So those amazing light bulb moment, moments when the dog gets it or it clicks or you've communicated something you've been trying to tell the dog or the dog is <laughs> the dog has finally reached, you know, out to you and it has communicated to you what it's been trying to say. Those light bulb moments with the dog are what I live for. I just, Oh me too. Oh, they're so me amazing. Too. And it doesn't and matter it, what you're trying to teach them. It's the no. it's the click. Oh yeah, yes, and, I got it. Yes. Yeah. And they it just like I said, still to this day, I mean, I had a puppy out the other day and I was a little frustrated because he hadn't turned on yet and he's six months old and he's bred to the nines and he's supposed to be my new sheep dog. And I was getting a little down about it, but I just kept on and we were following sheep around and I was calling him with me, you know, and I'm like, come on. And I'm getting things exciting and he's just walking along with me. And then all of a sudden he just went, oh, we're supposed to work these things. I mean, and we'd been out there for an hour and he hadn't seen them at all. And then all of a sudden, he turned on and I get out the camera and I'm hollering to my husband across the field. Look at him, look at him doing yes. He's got it. Yes, that gave me goosebumps. Those are the moments that I live for, whether I'm training a dog, photographing a dog, walking a dog, trying to teach a dog a new trick. It doesn't matter. It's just that moment when they click and you can feel the communication flowing freely between the two of you. Like that's the magic of what a working dog is for and why handlers or I call them partners because it seems to me it's more of a partnership than you handling a dog. It's you working with your dog in partnership to do a job. It's all yeah, they're, te- they're teammates. It, it, we're it's, yes. we're all a team, and and the yes. dogs are a part of our team. My my employees are a part of the team. The dogs are a big part of the team. Mm-hmm. So they know that. Yeah. And border collies are very much. They're very much into working as mm-hmm. a team. They they don't want to do it without you. So for our listeners, how can we support you? And the work that you and your dogs are doing. So you can uh, visit us on Facebook at Flyaway Geese, Instagram and Twitter at Flyaway Geese, LinkedIn. Okay. um, It's also Flyaway Geese on LinkedIn. Okay. Our website address is flyawaygeese.com. Oh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was if somebody wanted to see a demonstration or wanted to see your dogs at work, is there a way that they could go about finding a Flyaway Geese dog so that they could see this in action? Sure. If they reach out to me, um, I can put them in touch with somebody in their area so that they can see the dogs at work. If we've got somebody in their area, usually I've got a golf course or something. Um, Golf course magazine did a story on the dogs a while back and I was able to find dog and handler near them that they were able to go out and watch the dogs work and that kind of thing. So, and um, I also noticed on your website that you're not just on golf courses, but you also do a lot of airports and military bases, which is amazing. We do. That's amazing because um, the military bases could be using their own dogs if they wanted to. So the fact that they've reached out to you as an expert in the field to bring the dogs in is amazing to me. And I know that you probably can't talk a lot about the military installations, but how many accidents are you preventing by having these dogs on airports and military installation places? You know, it's very difficult to quantify, you know, Mm -hmm. a number that you can't prove, but, um, you know, even a strike from a pigeon can do hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage to an aircraft. So, which puts that aircraft out of, you know, circulation until they repair it and that type of thing. So the Air Force um, really, after that AWACS accident in um, Alaska, where they lost an entire crew that um, struck east and took the AWACS aircraft down, um, they got very serious about dealing with bird aircraft strike hazard issues. And um, that's what they call it. It's their bash plan. And they really set the bar uh, for the other military um, branches to really pay attention to bird aircraft strike hazards. And 
it's it's not so much in the air. It's a lot on takeoff and landing where um, these strikes are happening, where they're they're on level with with the birds, where the birds are moving around. Um, and you know, I mean, you can't stop the planes from flying, and right. they're going to come. Right. They're going to come in contact with birds. Um, what all we can do, what we did at Dover Air Force Base, for instance, half a million snow geese wintered within five miles of the Air Force Base there. Half a million. It's it's hard to imagine how many birds that is, but I can promise you, um, seeing a field full of 60,000 snow geese is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. um, but there are far fields all around the airfield. And so the dogs were put in place to convince those birds that the area, we basically built an unsafe zone around the Air Force Base. And mm -hmm. we couldn't stop birds from coming into that area. But what we were was the eyes and ears on the ground to tell those crews where the birds were. And with the dogs, we were able to control when the birds moved. So if we had a window, then we would push birds and get them out of the area before the next aircraft came through. Um, so, you know, it was a lot about managing movement of the birds and convincing them. You know, when we started at Dover, we started with a one mile radius around the airfield. And by the time we had been there for, I think it was 10 years, we were there in the end, we were able to work a six mile area around the airfield because we had pushed the birds out so far wow. that um, we were able wow. to year after year continue to push those birds out because they remembered mm -hmm. and their children remembered mm -hmm. um, that this area is not safe. We've got to move further out. You're doing it in a way that isn't hurting the birds or hurting the dogs. You're not causing damage to right. wildlife whatsoever. You're just, you're just moving them in right. a, in a, in a hazing sort of way, like they do with bears out here. Um, if Correct. they find a bear in a populated area, the bear dog will um, tree the bear and then make all of this noise and, and make it so that it's uncomfortable for the bear to come back. So it's amazing to me that right. the work that you do and the difference that you're making um, in so many different ways that you probably don't even realize. I mean, you probably don't even realize the difference that you and your dogs are making in certain areas. So um, congratulations on that, because that is amazing. And I am so happy Thank that you. I got to talk Thank to you today. Um, is there anything else that you think we need to know um, as far as as far as what you do, the work you do, and the and the dogs that you're working with, these dogs really, like I said, it it amazes me. You know, we got brought on to a project in Virginia Beach um, to keep shorebirds off of an island that they're doing a construction project on, and fifty five thousand shorebirds nesting on this island, and the dogs were brought in, and I wondered how effective it was going to be. I knew it would be effective, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how effective. And, you know, we had not one bird nest on that island last season. Um, wow. To be that effective somewhere where the birds have, have been for years and years, and for those birds to have another place and not have any takes in a situation like that where it you know, the birds were able to go somewhere else and nest and be successful at nesting and, and the project to move forward too. Mm -hmm. I think for us, that type of thing has been really cool to watch these dogs evolve into different things from just geese to shorebirds to I have a dog getting ready to start an elk hazing project in Pennsylvania where they brought in elk and, you know, they're having issues with, with people visiting and coming in contact with the elk and similar to what you were talking about with the bear. But you know, to, to see it branch out into different directions and to see the people that questioned it, you know, mm -hmm. the government agencies who thought it wouldn't work to mm -hmm. see them go, you know, mm -hmm. it does work yeah. and we know it works. Yeah. And, and 25 years ago, you'd have never heard some of these government entities say that the dogs were effective. Mm -hmm. And now I think everybody, there's enough science behind it now that, um, it, it's one of the first things that people look to. And to me, that's a super big win for us that, um, yeah. you know, they're starting yeah. to recognize that this, this is not a joke, that this really worked. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's not threatening for the wildlife that you're working with. You're just moving right. them. You're not hurting them. Um, so my last question right. is if there are um, humans who are listening to this podcast, who may be interested in becoming um, a flyaway geese dog handler, how would they get started? The first thing that they would need to do is to reach out to me. And um, we do classes oh. um, with the North American Goose Dog oh. Association. So if there's somebody who's wanting to get a goose control company started or um, wanting to look into it further and get certified, they can do that by reaching out to us. And through the North American Goose Dog Association, we can help them with that. 
the, the website um, for the North American Goose Dog Association should give a list of other certified members that may be in their area. Okay. So um, they could check that out and okay. see who's in their area as well. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for your time today. Um, I have learned a lot of You're things that I didn't know about goose dogs. And I love the way that I, I love your technique. I love the way that you apply your technique. And I love the way that you still get excited when your dogs do their work. It's just, that's the best. So, and I totally understand that feeling when that aha moment, it, it just keeps you motivated and keeps right. you going. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Working Dog Collective podcast. I've been your host, Holly of Holly Cook Photography based in Seattle, Washington. This is a listener supported podcast and details about how you can support this podcast for as little as $5 a month are provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining me on this journey of exploration into the world of working dogs. Let's get to work.